we're going to go in the Word. Last week, Chris did a phenomenal job. I thought it was a great message. Amen. Praise the Lord. I got so many responses from people that said he did a fantastic job. And so he's never allowed to speak again. I don't. I did not get one response. He was okay, but he's not you, brother. I mean, we need you back bad. So since it was all, this is wonderful. And I kind of felt like there was, you know, if you need to be out for a few more weeks, that's okay. Uh, So, yeah, he's forbidden to speak anymore. Uh, But it was a good word. Good word on how pillars of revival are about first begin with us. Chris and I talked about this, man, time flies probably a year ago about, you know, doing something on the pillars of, of revival and how it begins with us. And it really does. It really does begin with us. Now, when we hear the word revival, revival is a pretty broad-based word. That most of the time people think revival like lost people coming to know Jesus. Technically, that's not what revival is, but I use it that way, and most people do. Maybe you were raised in a church like I was. We had a spring and fall revival, and the, the goal was bring your lost friends and family members and classmates and coworkers to church, and, and uh, you know, hopefully they'll know the Lord. And if they came to know Jesus as their Savior, then we said, well, praise the Lord, we had a fantastic revival. But revival is actually for believers. To revive something means something had life, and it was losing life, and we re-energized it with fresh life. But the Scripture says that if we don't know Jesus as our Savior, we're dead in transgressions and sins, so we can't be revived because we're not vived yet. And so, so Christians are supposed to get revived and have revival. But when lost people come to know Jesus as their Savior, that technically is a spiritual awakening. That's a spiritual way. People are awakened to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual truth and reality of Jesus, and that's a spiritual awakening. We'll probably always call it revivals uh, and use it interchangeably, but that's the difference. But I believe for a spiritual awakening, which is a mission for the church, it's a mission for the, the Christians to, to actually uh, go out and take the good news to a hurting, broken, and dying world, that the chances of there being a spiritual awakening is greatly enhanced if the church, the people of God, that's what the church is, the people of God, if the people of God are revived. If we have passion and love and a heart that goes after God, then there's a great chance that someone just might see Jesus in us and say, wow, I like what you have. I would like to know more about that. So revival in our own hearts is critical to a a spiritual awakening. Now, what we're going to talk about today seems kind of interesting because I think it's essential as we look at, at certain church doctrines. By the way, a doctrine is a teaching or a belief system. And it's not just churches. Any organization has doctrines, doctrinal beliefs or belief systems or teachings, but that's what it is. And uh, today, I think something that's often overlooked when we think about revival and we think about these pillars of revival, uh, and we, we often even want to avoid the topic, is, is the doctrine of hell. So we're going to talk about that. Aren't you glad you came today? We're going to talk about the doctrine of hell. Um, It's um, a legitimate doctrine in Scripture. And like I say, a lot of people have wanted to kind of gut that from the Christian teaching, but we can't. We have to see what does God say? What does the Word of God say? So it's a dark matter. It's an extremely uh, dark issue. And so that's probably one reason we don't like to talk about a whole lot. Plus, there was a whole era where it seemed like that churches were always described as all the preaches hellfire and brimstone. Well, my goodness, you got to go a long time to hear a good message, hellfire and brimstone message anymore. But uh, maybe we swung the pendulum too far the other way. 
And because it's so heavy, we often turn it into um, hell and different things about hell are often looked at in, in a funny way or comedic way. And I get it, you know, it's kind of take the edge off of it. But we're going to dive into the deepness of it. But I am going to show you a couple things. And yes, you are allowed to think these things are funny. Okay, I know we're on the topic of hell. And hell's not a funny subject, but these things are pretty funny. Before we show this first slide, there was a, a gentleman, um, Hal Thomas is his name. And Hal Thomas, back 15, 20 years ago, I was at Cornerstone Community Church for something, probably with Tim Goodpastor and Inner's Courts or something. And Hal and his wife, incredibly gifted uh, worship people, musicians, led, led worship there for many years. And so I went by Hal's office, and somebody had taken and put a, a far side comic on his door. And I heard this. I don't know if this is true. I never need to ask him. I know him really well. Uh, but apparently Hal plays an accordion, as well as many other things, but plays an accordion. And so somebody put this poster on his uh, door. Let's take a look at it. Uh, here's people going to heaven. It says, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. Welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. And so they put that on, on Hal's door. And so apparently people going to hell get accordions. And uh, now this one I thought was pretty good. This next one, let's show it. It says, oh, we got rid of the hot coals years ago and switched them over to Lego pieces. So if you've, if you've ever stepped on a Lego piece barefoot, you, you, you get that. That was a pretty insidious little switch they made there in hell. So we're going to talk about this topic in a more of a serious matter than that. I was thinking about so much of this information I got from a guy named Timothy Keller, from C.S. Lewis, from, uh, guess what, from the Bible. Uh, there's so many things. We stand on the shoulders of those who teach. But if you read something in C.S. Lewis and say, that sounds like something Tracy has taught before, there's a good chance that I learned it from him, that he didn't learn it from me, especially since he went on to be with the Lord. Uh, so we learn from all these people. And hopefully we grow and pass that along. And if you spend time learning long enough, you'll even forget who all you learned everything from. So you think, well, that was pretty brilliant what I just said. And I know I didn't think of it, but I don't even know who to give credit to for it. So we're all learning all the time. When, when, we, when we try to get this doctrine of hell out of the Christian teaching, out of the Christian uh, uh, principles of, of faith, when we go to remove that because it seems like kind of nice let's just get rid of this this is this is this is horrible stuff when we do that we at the same time will do irreparable damage to the teachings of God's mercy and of his grace and of his love and of his kindness and of his compassion and of Jesus's great love and suffering and all of a sudden you say, so, so you're telling me that if we don't really examine the doctrine of hell, we don't understand how deeply we are loved by God? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. So you're somehow saying the doctrine of hell reveals the love of God? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll see that when we look at Scripture. Uh, but you've got to think a little deeper than just on the surface. So we're going to lay a foundation for this. And we're going to see what the Scriptures say. Let's look at... at Four sets of scripture, and by the way, there's dozens and dozens. But let's look at four sets of scripture. The first two are spoken by Jesus himself. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, trust me, I've been at this for decades, and, and uh, I can tell you there's a million different ways we've tried to unravel this and reteach it and repackage it, but the Bible's pretty clear about it. And then in Matthew 25, 41 through 46, kind of weird that we're reading 41 and 46, but there's this teaching about Jesus, and you, you've probably been familiar with it if you've been in church any at all, and if you haven't, that's fine. If this is your first time in church, seriously, thank you for being here. Welcome. We, we love having people. I, I, I love when people have never been to church and it's your first time. And sometimes people feel like, well, if I go to church, I'm afraid the, the building will fall in. Guess what? It didn't. You know, we're all still well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. But Jesus is teaching. And you remember the story where Jesus says this, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you cared for me. And the righteous said, when did we see you in any of these conditions and do that? And Jesus said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it to me. But then there's the other group of people that he says to them, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me to drink. And the Lord said, they said, when? And they said, well, when you didn't do it to these people, you didn't do it to me. So the, the, all that teaching, the, the didn'ts, you didn't do these, is sandwiched between Matthew 25, 41, and 46. So he starts out by saying, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the, what's the next word? The devil and what? His angels. This is so important. I really want you to see this. This is not a small point. This is a huge point. Who, what, what was this place of torment? Who was it prepared for? For the devil and his angels. Do you see anywhere in there that God said for human beings? No, this place is not prepared and was not designed to hold you or me. It was designed for the devil and his angels. Now, are you saying, so Tracy, you're saying no human beings are going? To, yeah, they are because they're following the way of the devil. And so Jesus said this, because he's speaking to human beings. He said, then he said, those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. And then he gets down to 46 and he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a sobering thought. These verses we look at are a sobering thought. And if we're not careful, we'll say, so then we can earn our way into heaven. If we do good things, we get to go to heaven. If we don't do them, we get to go to hell. We know, remember, we talk a lot about the whole counsel of God. We know this from Scripture. You can't earn heaven. You, can't, you cannot. It says, it says salvation is a gift from God. It's not by works or good deeds, so no one can brag or boast. It's a gift from God. So, well, what is he saying here then? I believe he's saying what I often say is your belief determines your behavior. When people say, I love Jesus, I love the Lord, I'm a Christian, it should affect their behavior. It should affect the way they live. Now, did I say they were perfect? None of us here. I, I mean, we, we might put on a smiley face and act like we never think a bad thought, we never say a bad thing, we never do a bad thing, but it's not true. And so it isn't that we did everything perfect in our lives, but the direction of our life is going towards God. And when the direction of our life is going towards Jesus, then it changes the way we behave. 
And so Jesus was saying, I have examined this, and I was hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, sick. You took care of me. I see the trajectory of your life. And I see this trajectory because nothing was given to other people. Because you know what happens? We, when we're not really, you know, Jesus conscious, then everything in life, guess what, is about me. And so I ain't got time to give my time, my energy, my money, my effort, my emotions to you because it's all about me. And that's what was revealed in this story. And so those who said, I really didn't want anything to do with God, uh, but I'll talk the talk, God's challenging us to walk the walk. And then Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, he writes here in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, this is all about people treating God's people with evil contempt, the whole chapter there. And it says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, it's just so interesting how we view God. That what a, what a, a mean person who would do that. But really think about this. There are people, and you know them, they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want God to dictate what they think, how they live, their morality, their ethics, their behaviors, their, their passion, where they want to take their lives, their amb ambitions. They don't want God to mess with any of that. They really say, God, you need to mind your own business. I don't want your presence meddling with my life. I want to do life how I want to do it. But then when I die, I fully expect to be welcomed into your presence. I think God's saying, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what all your life said you wanted. You did not want my presence. So you're shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 20, 13, and 14, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. These are very sobering verses that we probably should spend some more time talking about than what we do. But we're going to deal with them today because they're pillars uh, of, of revival to understand these things. Now, these are just four sets of verses. I want you to know this clearly. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of verses about this concept in hell in the scriptures. So this isn't something where we say, you ever notice there's some really interesting topics in the Bible that there's very little information about? And you got like one and a half verse in the Old Testament and half a verse in the New Testament, and it's fascinating. You try to put them together, you can't really get a good solid doctrine out of it because there's just not enough information. But there's a lot of interesting speculation about This doesn't require interesting speculation. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of verses in the Scripture from spiritual leaders all throughout the Bible who talk about this concept of hell. So we're going to deal with two mindsets that's in the room today. The first mindset's a traditional mindset. It's what I have. A lot of the older people in this room have what would be a traditionalist mindset. So here's how the traditionalist mindset works. Especially if you're raised around here in the Bible Belt and you probably went to church and even if you didn't want to, you probably have some exposure to God and church and everything. And I was, I was raised in, in Hope. And on Good Friday, we would all dismiss... Um, from Hope Elementary, and we would walk down to the Hope Methodist Church, and there was a Good Friday service preached to the students at Hope Elementary. So that was the world I was raised in. 
Now, I don't know what would happen today if we said we're going to take everybody down to the local church and school and preach to them a, a Good Friday message, but uh, that's the world I was raised in. And so traditionalists have this mindset that first, they have a belief in God. Now, it doesn't mean they're Christians, doesn't mean they got a good understanding of God, but they got a basic belief in God. And the other thing that traditionalists have is there's this real belief in moral absolutes and this internal obligation to be good. So we believe in moral absolutes. So we believe, when we look at the culture today, we just are blown away. Like, I, I can't believe we're even arguing over this, you know, because we have a sense of moral absolutes. That's right and that's wrong, period. That's right and that's wrong. And then we, we feel like we should behave. Now, we may not be behaving, but there's something inside us that feels like we need to be behaving. I remember this one time having a conversation with a person. We were talking about expressiveness in worship, and uh, the person said, so basically what you're telling me is we all ought to act like a bunch of idiots when we're in church. And I said, well, I, I, I think I'd be a little careful with that because there was a guy who really worshiped God vibrantly and enthusiastically in the Old Testament named King David. And King David, by the way, he didn't dance himself naked. We say that all the time. But his outer kingly vestments were off. He had on a garment underneath that. And um, his wife made fun of him, and she actually became barren for, for making fun of his ridiculousness and his expressiveness and worship to God. And that person shut up like that because they had a, a respect for God and the Bible. Now, you could tell that story to somebody today, and they go, who cares about that story? But it was interesting how that person went, almost like, forgive me. You know, I, I should never have said something like that. I didn't know that story was in the Bible. And so there's this respect for God and the Bible, and we feel like we should be good. And so when we take the gospel message to a traditionalist mindset, um, it's pretty simple to tell somebody, for those of you who have a traditionalist mindset, here's what we learn, that our sin separates us from God. We go, yeah, I believe that. And guess what? You can't be good enough to earn your salvation. And since you can't be good to earn enough to earn your salvation, you're going to split hell wide open one day if you don't get a remedy to this. And then we have this belief that hell exists and that it is what the Bible says it is. And the thought of going there is overwhelming. So the, the horror of a traditionalist is, is imperfection. We can't do it. But then we discover Jesus can, and so we run to him. Now, the problem is, and this isn't really a problem, but we really ran to him more to avoid hell than to have Jesus. That, that, but that... That's okay in the start. I get that. If you are here today and saying, I would do anything to avoid hell, then I want to say, you're a very intelligent person. I mean that. You're a very intelligent person. You should do anything to avoid hell. And if you believe Jesus is the answer, then run to Jesus. But there's a point where, for us traditionalists, we have to make a shift into understanding that it's not just the avoidance of hell, but it's the beauty and love and majesty and and goodness of Jesus. It's not just the fear of hell. As Jesus, he experienced not only the awful torment of the cross. I read an article one time. It said in all of man's advancements, they've never figured out anything more painful and awful 
than crucifixion. Not only did Jesus experience that, but he experienced hell specifically. Now there's all kinds of arguments about what all that he experienced. All I can tell you is this. Jesus had victory over death, hell, and the grave. And when we start thinking, hold it, so you're telling me that Jesus did all that to solve a problem I couldn't fix? Yeah, you began to start getting a peek into the love of Jesus towards us and how much he loves us. Just the idea of leaving heaven and all the dimensions of heaven and clothing yourself in a physical body is incomprehensible to me, let alone everything else he did. So traditionalists, I want you to know this. Jesus is crazy in love with you. Uh, are you, you going to avoid hell? Absolutely. But Jesus is crazy in love with you. It is the avoidance of hell, but something even bigger. It's falling in love with Jesus. Jim Bird and I were talking last night, and I'm probably going to butcher the story, but you'll get the idea. It was a church somewhere where the evangelist was speaking on, on hell. It's supposed to be a true story. And, and the, the lady was, there was a lady. It was a demonstrative congregation anyway, but the lady was like praising God and doing this and that. Finally, the, the uh, preacher stopped and says, Lady, what, what are you, why, why are you doing that? Do you not realize I'm speaking on hell? And she said, yes, I do. I'm doing that because I think, God, I'm not going there. And uh, I thought, that's good response. We're not going there. Now, the secular postmodern mindset, which is very popular in the world today, it's usually younger folks who have this, although older folks can have it. But if you grew up in a more liberal part of the country or, or grew up in a household that was void of any spiritual influence, at least of, of Christ, then you might have more of a secular or postmodern mindset. By the way, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just telling you, you'll know this about yourself, how you think. It's okay. When you look at a, a secular postmodern mindset, first of all, there's a vague belief in the divine, if any at all. There's just kind of this, I think maybe there's a God or maybe not. You're not sure. And you have a little sense of moral absolutes. Can you see that in the culture today? Very little sense of moral absolutes. And their sense, the postmodern secular mindset, the, the sense in their heart and mind is that they need to be true to their dreams, to their beliefs, to their desires, to their wants, to their wishes. Now, you, you don't have to. You could be 80 years old today and have a secular postmodern mindset, so it's not just age, but it's how you view the world, how you look at things. And so you often hear me say this, a lot of times people say this, I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want, with whom I want, the way I want, and don't interfere with it. That's, that's the secular mindset. And so we're just saying, I'm just trying to do me. You know what I mean? Just let me be me. And that's the postmodern mindset. But the postmodern mindset has to come to grips with a couple things because the whole idea of the postmodern and secular mindset is I'm free. I'm free. I'm not under all these bondages of you crazy Christians. I'm free. But as you begin to get an understanding of God and Scripture, the postmodern secular mindset today must begin to view sin as slavery. Sin is slavery. The Scripture clearly reveals that, that we become a slave to sin. And, and sin's not just about breaking the rules. 
Because that's what we don't like. We don't like to hear about rules that are being broken. Sin is about making something besides God your ultimate worth and your ultimate value. Did you hear that? It's not just about breaking rules. It's about making something other than God your ultimate goal, your ultimate worth, your ultimate value. And so the things that are really on the surface good things become gods, and they begin to drive us. And then they begin to capture us mentally and spiritually, and they will take us straight to hell forever if we let them. And what happens if you're a secular postmodern mindset today is that you're actually being religious. You may not know it, but you're trying to gain salvation. Now, maybe that's a churchy word. You're trying to gain worth, acceptance in life by what you do or who you are or what you have obtained. And that's the horror of the freedom worshiper is that they have slavery. They start looking and say, wow, I'm a slave. See, modern people think this, that God's just up there trying to figure out ways to inflict punishment on those who disobey him. That's not what God's doing. I want you to know he's not doing that at all. I often say when people say, well, you know, I feel like God's just out there. He just wants to get people. I say, yeah, he wants to get you with his love and with his mercy and with his compassion. And, and the scripture tells us that. The scripture says this, don't show contempt for the goodness and kindness of God. Listen, to this, for it is the goodness and kindness of God that leads you to repentance. To change. So he's trying to get you with his goodness and his kindness. A lot of times we overlook the daily kindnesses of God. You woke up this morning. That's the kindness of God. You took a breath. That's the kindness of God. All the general kindnesses of God. So sin begins to separate us from God. So we're separated from his presence. You know, I don't have an overhead for this, but Isaiah 59.2 talks about that. We get separated from him who's the source of all joy, as Psalm 16.11 would say. All wisdom, all love, anything good. James tells us this, every good gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Everything good that's radiating from God. And so Romans 1 tells us we were built, we were designed, we were crafted by God for God. We were designed to live for God. But all of a sudden we're living for love or for work or for achievement or accomplishment or possessions or prestige or fame or fortune or that goes on and on and on and then it begins to enslave us and pretty soon we have guilt because we're trying to obtain stuff have you ever tried to obtain something and couldn't get it then you start feeling guilty what's wrong with me maybe i'm not doing this right i need to try harder i need to do this and that so you got all this drivenness in you then sometimes you get angry because maybe at work you were going to get that promotion and somebody got it in front of you Oh my goodness, they got my promotion? And so now we're angry because we're so driven. We're trying to find our worth in all kinds of other things. Or maybe we get fearful. wonder how many people have been treated badly because we were fearful that they were going to get what we wanted. So we wanted to, to diminish them in the eyes of everyone. And what's happening? You're becoming a slave. You're becoming a slave to your passions and your desires and your ambitions and, and fear and, and guilt and and anger, and all that begins to drive us. So, so sin's worshiping anything but Jesus because sin produces death. Sin produces slavery. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. You're free to go there if you want to. I highly recommend not. I echo the words of Paul 
that we are ambassadors for Christ, and I beg you, I urge you, I implore you, on behalf of God, be reconciled to him. Be made right with him. Don't let another day go. Preachers used to preach hell hot, and it is, and eternal. And we need to not forget that. The second thing that I think we have to learn, if we have a secular postmodern mindset, is there is no love without wrath. I was thinking about that when I was going over my notes. It's probably a poor way of saying that, because I can't say, well, uh, I love Darlene, so therefore I'll beat her up today because I'm going to show some wrath or something. That's not what I mean. What I'm trying to say with this line is, when there's genuine deep love, there is the capacity for anger and wrath. When there's genuine deep love, there is the capacity for anger and wrath. And where there is no deep love, anger and wrath doesn't happen. For, for instance, we have people who are infuriated with the idea that God would have judgment or wrath and say, I can't believe a God would send some body to suffer eternally. What kind of loving God would do that? Well, when we have a wrathless God, we have an unloving God. And when I see a news report of a, a family that's been brutally, heinously, and for no reason just murdered and destroyed by some evil maniac, I never see the surviving family member say, I just want you to know this. I can never live in a culture, never live in a country, never live in a legal system that would punish this person. I feel that, that I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. That's so wrong. No, there's, there's a holy anger and, and maybe even an unholy anger. There's a sense for justice and wrath and, and all that. I cannot tell you how often I hear that this world hates the doctor of hell but if you've watched any kind of shows on TV or watched the news and you see somebody whose family's been brutalized like that, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, and, and I'm not saying it was always said in the right spirit, but I get what they're saying. They will say things like this, I hope they burn in hell. What happened? I thought we didn't like hell. I thought we didn't want hell. Oh, well, we want hell for the people we don't like. You know, We want hell for the people who wronged us. But if you've seen anybody, there's probably people in your lives, you see them make wrong choices that's destroying their lives. And is there not a holy anger in you? Is there not a holy wrath that just says, I, want to, I would do anything to stop that? And it's not hatred. We think anger is the opposite of love. It's not. Hate's the opposite of love. Anger and wrath is a normal byproduct of somebody who loves. But I can tell you this. When I hear a story of a family that's been brutally killed and I don't know who they are, guess what? I have no sense of anger or wrath. Why? I have no deep love for them. There's, there's, there's no love. You see what I'm saying? But if it happens to somebody you know, there's a whole different set of emotions. And our God hates the sin that is a cancer eating out the spiritual lives of his people whom he deeply loves, the people of planet Earth whom he deeply loves. And so this deep love of God that's indescribable, this deep love of God that King David said, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is, what is the son of man that you visit him? What is this, this passionate love of God when he sees your life, my life, the lives of lost and hurting and broken people being eaten away by sin? It causes an anger in him that he wants to fix. So where there is no love, 
there's no wrath or judgment, but where there is love, there is wrath and judgment. See, God's wrath's not a cranky explosion. See, we think again, he had too much coffee today, he's on edge, he didn't get enough sleep, he's, something's wrong with him, he just went off. No, it's not like that. It is wanting to destroy the cancer of sin. Tim Keller writes this. I'm going to read several things from Tim Keller here, so hang with me here. They say it's not polite to read to people, but I've never been accused of being polite, so let's go on. It says, Tim Keller writes, Fairly often I meet people who say, I have a personal relationship with a loving God, and yet I don't believe in Jesus Christ at all. Why not, he asks. They reply, my God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering for sin. But then a question remains, what did it cost this kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did he endure in order to receive us? Where did God agonize, cry out? Where were the nails and the thorns? And the only answer is, I don't think that was necessary. How ironic. In our effort to make God more loving, we've made God less loving. His love, in the end, needed to take no action. It was sentimentality, not love at all. The worship of a God like that will be impersonal, mental, and ethical. There will be no joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. We would not sing to such a God as that. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Hmm, how true. That is why this is a pillar of revival. If thought about and meditated upon, it will cause love to gush up from our hearts and well up and thanksgiving. And it does end in us singing, love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. I don't know, maybe many of you while you're singing today were just thinking, oh, I love you so much, God. I don't even know how to express it. I, I, this passionate love for God. A love like that does not exist with a God who does not love deeply. And so as we understand this doctrine of hell, it first works on us, each of us individually. And I hope it does a couple of things. First of all, I mean, it's if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, and I, I know you say, well, I don't think hellfire and brimstone preaching works. Well, this wasn't too fiery and brimstone but it was some teaching on hell. You should do everything in your power to avoid hell. I, I think absolutely, this is, I am sorry, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I've heard it too many times. People who say they believe in God, but they would never serve him if he would send people to hell. I say, okay, well, let's think about this for a second. If there is an ultimate being who has the power to send you into eternal punishment, I think the right answer is that you would go to him and say, what do you want, sir? I don't understand the logic of, I'll teach him. I will reject him. He won't bully me. If he's going to send people to hell, I'll teach you. That really taught him, didn't it? That, that's, that's crazy. Now, that's not the spirit of our God. We know that. But it would make sense to do anything to avoid it. So I encourage you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, hell's a real destination for people. And it doesn't get better after that. The Bible says death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. 
And so it doesn't, we don't get improvements here. So I want to remind us, if you're a believer here today, I want to remind us and deepen us of the crazy love God has for us. How much Jesus was willing to suffer. How much Jesus was willing to suffer for you and for me because of his passionate love for us. I believe if we can stir up the love of God in our hearts, it can transform our lives. Second of all, I hope it reignites our desire to share this amazing love about Jesus with those we know who are lost and hellbound. Don't be afraid to share your faith. Don't be afraid to love on people. I'm not saying everyone will receive it with joy, but it's a message they need to hear. I can tell you in the natural world, not talking spiritual things, if the bridge is out ahead, I want somebody to tell me. I want somebody. Well, if somebody thought it was funny to remove all the uh, stop signs, I want somebody out there waving, bridge out ahead, don't go this way. And I would not think for a second, well, you're not telling me what to do. I'll do whatever I want to do. I'll go down this road if I want to. Well, you can to your peril, but we should listen. A pillar for revival is knowing the great love Jesus has for us, that he would endure death, hell, and the grave. Now, we didn't take time to read this today, so this is your assignment for the week. It's a crazy one. It's read Isaiah 53. It has all kinds of graphic, powerful images of what Jesus, it's a prophetic prophecy, a foretelling of what Jesus would do to be our Savior. And I know it's wild. There's 12 whole verses in it. I know there's 12 whole verses. Some of the verses are kind of long, so I know you'll be suffering for Jesus to read through that, but 12 12 verses, and there's things like this. He was, he was crushed. It said it pleased the Father to crush him. Wow. It says that he bore our sicknesses and diseases, and, and by his stripes you were healed. There's all kinds of just amazing stuff in here about what all Jesus did for us. He was despised and rejected of men. It goes on and on. So read Isaiah 53 this week. Read it more than once. And I also want to remind you that God never created hell for any human being. Hell really is the greatest monument to human freedom. Now, some people would say, well, Tracy, what about those around the world who have never heard about Jesus? I have an answer for that. God will do justly and rightly. And I have another answer. The people around the world who have never heard Jesus, it ain't you. You're here, you've heard of him. We stand before the Lord responsible for what we've heard. I just know this, the God of all the world will do justly and will do rightly. And I think, I really do believe it's a demonic, satanic sidetrack to sit there and go, well, I, but what about people in a tribe that's never heard? We're not talking about that. We're talking about me and you. We have heard. So get that off your mind. God will work all that out and he'll work it out rightly and correctly. Now, some of you may have loved ones that you say to yourself, oh, my goodness, just when I think about hell, I think some of my loved ones are there. I, I want to give you this word of encouragement. First of all, you don't know where they are. You don't know what kind of mercy and grace was shown to them in the final hour. You don't know. And so you could drive yourself crazy wondering about that. Or you could say, you know what? I'm going to trust that in the last minute, the last second, God did something. That all the stuff they knew, 
I, I heard a story. I think Tim Hadley told it to me one time uh, about a guy he was been witness to, and and I think it's a local guy. Tim, he'll straighten up the story afterwards when I ask him about it. He'd been witness to and talked about the Lord and, and never received the Lord. And he was sitting in his chair, and he stood up like this and said, "Oh Jesus, save me!" And he fell back down in his chair dead. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you hadn't seen that, I think the wife saw that, you would think he split hell wide open. You don't know that. Believed your loved ones are okay. I mean, but what if they aren't? Well, what if they are? I mean, keep your mind healthy. There was a guy right here in the church, Lynn Crussell, years ago. He likes the motorcycle ride. He had ridden like six hours one day, and he got home and... And he had a buddy who was in a little fender bender on a motorcycle. He was in the hospital up in Indianapolis. And, and he uh, got home and he just felt this little tugging in his heart. You need to go up and see, you know, whoever it was. And um, it was like a family member of a bunch of Christians, but this guy was not one. And so Lynn drove up there and saw him, said he was in good shape. He's just a little fender bender. He wasn't even banged up bad. And so Lynn shared with him about Jesus and prayed with him, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And that night, he died. And all the family knew that he split hell wide open because he had never bowed his knee to Jesus until Lynn came to that funeral home. You want to know the spirit of that place changed when Lynn said, I got some good news for you. I was up there the night he died. I shared Jesus with him, and we prayed together, and he received Jesus as a Savior. I just want to tell you, there's hope. Get your mind out of worrying about where's my, my loved one, my friend. Just trust that God has done miraculous things. Have peace, have peace, have peace. That's torment to think on that. Get that out of your mind and trust God is able. Let's redirect our hearts, not towards hell, but towards the goodness of God, the love of God, and the everlasting joy we have not judgment in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together while we're praying.